0: We are, it's more than just a chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. episode number 46 of Lion Legacy a lot of times we dive into Penn State sports as that's very common for us Ross. we spoke about Penn State basketball in the past but I hear you yeah. and my friends are a basketball coach for your son's basketball team.
1: oh yeah so my winter so far a lot of time has been spent as the head coach of my son's basketball team here in our local rec league in our area. I'm coaching a team of fourth and fifth graders. And let me tell you, Jared, I'm having way too much fun with it, <laughs> way too much fun. I sit down before, the night before a practice, I come up with a practice plan. I'm like, all right, let's come up with some drills we want to work on, some areas where we can could improve from the previous game. I spend some time the day before the game. So we have games on Saturday mornings. And so Friday, late in the day, I actually created a spreadsheet to help me figure out my lineups. Cause I have to make sure the kids get equal playing time. And so I, I actually sit down with a spreadsheet and try to figure out like who's going to play the first quarter who's gonna be the second quarter and so on. We're having a great time for those following along at home. We're three and two through five games. We're in third place. I'm really proud of our defense. We actually got some statistics from our commissioner and we have let up the fewest amount of points defense wins championships. So we'll see. We've got a few more weeks left. we got a couple more regular season games and then we get to the playoffs and we'll see how it goes, but we're having a lot of fun. I'm impressed.
0: Three, three and two, man. And those two losses have been close, right? Yeah,
1: two losses have been close, and they actually, we've lost to the top two teams. The games that we lost were against teams that are in first and second place, and they were tight.
0: And I got to ask, because a lot of times coaches say the toughest part of the job is not the kids, but the parents. The parents being good on you?
1: Oh, parents have been great. Yeah, no, they've been great. They're very thankful that I'm using my free time, quote-unquote, to help coach, and it's been a lot of fun.
0: Maybe we have to get a couple of our buddies, Andy and John and Eric and we'll go in and surprise and just start heckling you.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't put it past you, but I, yeah, I don't know if it's worth the trip for a
0: game that's going to be like twenty to eighteen. We've got a great guest today. Before we get into the intro of the guest, we'll understand why I asked this question once yep. we intro the guest. Yep. But your favorite book or favorite well, author? Favorite. Well, again, as Jared said, well, there's a reason
1: why we're talking about books here. I don't, I don't read as much as I'd like to, but one thing is, I typically only read nonfiction. For me, I just, I can't, I could never get into fiction because if I'm good, I figure if I'm going to have a fiction story, I'd rather just watch a movie. But for nonfiction, I'd rather it be something I could learn about. And so I'm sure people will disagree with that, whatever. It's just my personal style. I like a lot of like short essays, book of essays. I read a lot about pop culture. I like, I really like Chuck Klosterman. He's one of my favorites. He writes a lot about pop culture specifically in the nineties. It's our formative years. And that's what I I really enjoy him. And I'm trying to think, I, again, my reading is, I, it's shameful. I really should read more than I do, but he's one of my favorites. And I've read David Sedaris and Nick Hornby and a few of the others. And I think there's probably a little bit of fiction sprinkled in there. So I'm going back on what I said, but yeah, that's kind of style. How about you, Jared?
0: For, for me, this one's easy. Harlan Coben is a fiction writer. Yeah. It's a mystery. You just got to check him out, Ross. Yeah. All right. Get one book dive into it let me know come back report back on the podcast okay. he's a fan favorite of mine my dad reads him as well usually comes out with a book about every march april so okay i'm gearing coming up. up coming up. Gearing up
1: we got a new one so speaking the reason why we brought up books is so we spoke with chip kid who is a graphic designer he's largely known for the book covers that he's designed He's been at it ever since his Penn State days. Super impressive, super talented guy. If you go onto his Wikipedia page or you Google him, you see all of the talented authors that he's worked with in designing their book covers. He's got a portfolio on his website. It shows you all of the cover art that he's designed. And it's really something, especially Jared, neither you nor I are super artistic. And so when you come across somebody that has a skill like that, it's absolutely uber impressive.
0: Yeah, and learned a lot too about the difference between art and graphic design as well, which Chip gets into a special shout out, of course, to Professor O'Toole's class. This episode was produced by McKenna Mink. So great job finding Chip Kidd and helping us produce this wonderful podcast.
1: All right, Jared, we're going to go open up our book, but then we're actually going to close our book and we're going to look at the cover. All with Chip Kidd.
0: <laughs> All right, let's welcome Chip Kid, a 1986 graduate with a degree in graphic design. Chip is a legendary artist designing book covers, working on comic books, writing novels, and creating music. If you ever saw the cover for Jurassic Park, well, now you know who designed it. USA Today has said that Chip's the closest thing to a rock star in the industry. James Elroy, a widely recognized author, calls Chip the world's greatest graphic designer He's won numerous awards, worked with thousands of authors, and has been affiliated with pretty much every publishing house out there. Chip, it's a true honor to have you on Lion Legacy. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Hey, thank you. Thank you guys for asking me.
1: Chip, very nice to meet you. First of all, we love your name. It's a very strong name. Is Chip your given name, or is that a nickname? Or
2: what? Charles is my given name, but my mom had decided before I was out of the womb that the nickname would be Chip.
1: All right. That's and very decisive. I like it.
2: Yeah. And when I first came to New York and I was looking for a job, people thought that I made it up some
1: sort of gimmick.
2: But no, it's I grew up with it.
1: Excellent. So, of course, we always do a bit of research before we, we have our guests come on the show. I had a chance to visit your website and we'll certainly urge all of our listeners to check out your great work at chipkid.com. When looking at your portfolio, notice that there isn't necessarily a single theme or a style that sticks out. When you look, put all of your cover art together, you'd have a hard time piecing it together and knowing that it came from the same artist if you didn't know it was your work. So I guess, would you say that you have a style or would you say that your style is not necessarily having a style?
2: De- definitely the latter. I don't have a style, I have a sensibility. And when it comes to this kind of work, those are two different things. When I was studying graphic design at Penn State in the first half of the 80s, there was this record label from Manchester called Factory Records. And the design of those album covers had a huge effect on me. There was a long gone record store in in State College called Arborea. It was used records, but then they would get all these really cool imports in too. Most of the covers I really liked were designed by this guy named Peter Saville. And the reason I bring it up is that I was so influenced by this aspect of what he was doing. There was no clear visual link from one to the other. They each stood out individually and that definitely interested me.
0: I think that just speaks to your talent though, right? In some ways there's artists that stick to only one and they've developed, this is my niche. And this is what I really feel strong at. You're very strong in so many different areas and aspects of art. It's pretty impressive. Well, I, I mean, I try to be a
2: graphic design. When you say I'm an artist, I don't really look at it that way. I'm a graphic designer and graphic design is problem solving for a client. And if the client can anticipate what I'm going to do, then I've failed. I want to surprise them. And you mentioned James Elroy. Perfect example, here's a writer I've been working with for over 30 years, and he's got a new novel called The Enchanters, which is coming out in the fall. And he had this really difficult brief about what he wanted to see, which is unusual for him. Usually he just lets me do my thing, but but yeah, he just approved it. It all goes on.
0: Yeah. I want to touch on the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. And certainly that has a lot of meaning outside of the world of books. But speaking of book covers, that's a major part of your livelihood. In your opinion, what's the importance of the cover in the grand scheme of it all? Don't judge a
2: book by a, its cover, judge a cover by its cover.
0: <laughs> and
2: I, I, the cover plays, I think, a key part in marketing the book, but it's It's especially more than ever, it's, it's just, frankly, it's like a, it's a small part of it, but I'm happy to say that after 36 and a half years of doing this, and I hope that there are many more, what I'm just relieved about is that there, there's no author working today that does not want a cover for their book. And that, I think that's always going to be the case. They're always going to want some hopefully unique visual component to what, they've done. Yeah. But now do I think people go on the internet and buy books for their covers? I really seriously doubt it, which is fine.
0: Switching to comic books, was that an early childhood influence that inspired you to get into art and graphic design? Definitely. I wanted to
2: be a cartoonist as a kid and I I was drawing all the time. But there was definitely part of me that knew that I wasn't good enough. And when I got to college, when I was just the first semester, freshman year, some amazing guidance counselor pointed me towards graphic design. I had never heard the term graphic design before. And so I took intro to graphic design right away. That's when I realized, okay, no, this is what you want to do for a lot of reasons, not the least of which it's commercially viable if you're good at it. But yes, comic books, influenced me a lot especially because of the way especially the ones i was reading as a kid in the 60s and 70s the way typography is used it because what the what the people are saying what the characters are saying and thinking is visu- is visually separated out from their picture and that had a tremendous influence on me. And I didn't even realize it. Somebody pointed it out to me like 10 years into my career. You know, a lot of your design schemes are like comic book panels because of the way you separate out the image and the type. And I was like, oh my God, you're late.
0: So you said when you were growing up, (coughs) you didn't think you were a strong artist. Is that right? Correct.
2: I was just not a strong draftsman. Okay, And especially when you get to college, you're in classes with other kids who are really good. And it's it's like, all right, this person can really draw and really draw well. I'm taking intro to drawing. I'm going to see it through. The trick is to not get too intimidated by that. But it it did further cement in my mind that illustration was not going to be my strong point.
1: Chip, let's go a little bit deeper into your creative process, and I'll set this up as that this is a multi-part question, but you can pick and choose which parts you want to dive into. So, when you're designing a book cover, do you read the entire book? Obviously, you're talking with the author. What are, you know? How much do the information do they give you about what they want? Who gives the final approval? How long does it take? Just talk us through in summary how that all works.
2: Uh, this is a very good question. My cop-out answer is that. Every book is different and every author is different. Now, at this point, there are some of the authors that I've been working with for so long that we have a, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Rapport? A a rapport, but just like a groove and who wants to give me a lot of input, who just wants to see what I'm going to do. But I have to read the entire book, especially if it's fiction or poetry. A year and a half ago, I was working on the memoirs of Billie Jean King. Sure. The manuscript wasn't done yet. And they were also what they call, embargoing it so that, cause they don't want it to leak. And it's so easy for that to happen in this day and age. So I just, I was in contact with her and then she has an editor and then we have an editor in chief in house. And we talked a lot about it. And that was that particular process. But I wasn't, I really wasn't allowed to read it, but she's a public figure that I knew a lot about anyway. And she's, she's had this amazing long career. And now she's a human rights activist for the gay and lesbian community. And it was really about what aspect of her and her career do we want to feature on the front? And there was a real back and forth about it. And we ended up going with a vintage shot of her from the seventies when, as a tennis player, she was really in her prime and it's a beautiful picture and yeah, there was lots of discussion and then on the back of it is a, is a full frame headshot of her now because she wanted to remind people, all right, that was me then, but this is me now and that's perfectly understandable too. But again, like that's, it's, that's its own case. Who gives final approval? We are not, at Alfred A. Knopf and Pantheon, we are not going to go to press with something that the author does not like, even if it's not in their contract. It's just not our policy. And that can get very tricky. The author has to be on board with it. And how long does it take from start to finish? Oh, it could take an afternoon or it could take six months. (laughs) You just don't know. But what's great about deadlines in the book world is that they're so extended out. We just started working on spring 24. So there's enough time built into that timeline. Something goes wrong and the author doesn't like it. We have enough time to figure it out.
0: And are you ever working with other graphic designers or is it usually solo? This is my book cover. I own it as a graphic designer and then working with the editor. within the
2: department. There's a There's what, eight of us, we work solo and we have a great staff, great lineup led by my boss, John Gall, who's just absolutely brilliant. If somebody is having a problem with trying to trying to get to a solution that an author wants, then it can transfer over to one of the other designers, but it's more about like giving the original designer a break and, burnout on it as opposed to say an ad agency where you have different teams of people within the agency all competing for the same account i wouldn't i would hate that and which is a big reason why i'm not in advertising fair enough
0: yeah you answered the question because my next one was going to be around is there ever a time where you're just like hey this isn't working we're not getting anywhere and you could see as you said it just transfers over to another person if they're willing to take right it. makes and sense. that
2: happens with i do freelance work. We're all allowed to do freelance work as long as it's on our own time. And the freelance stuff, it's easier to say, all right, this is the third phase of covers. And for some reason, you or the author or the marketing department still doesn't like anything I'm coming up with. Why don't we just call it a day? I don't like for that to happen, but it does.
0: Sure. H- how many projects will you work on and at, uh, at the same time usually?
2: I'm usually balancing 10 to 15 things at once in in between, but that's everything from just starting to read a manuscript to doing what's called a mechanical, so it can go to the printer. And I personally, I don't have an assistant. I've never had an assistant. I have access to our staff. Like if I need help with something, I can definitely get that from them, but I'm really hands-on with all of it. Fantastic, Uh, impressive. Everything's changed so much, especially during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, we used to root around the office hard copies of everything. And the poor assistant to the managing editor would have to walk this paper thing around to get people to initial it. Wow. Yes. So for her, the pandemic was really good <laughs> because you can just totally do it digitally, which we could have before. But we have people in the office who have been there forever and aren't used to that. Yeah, forcing Uh, function. But they had to get used to it.
0: Yeah. That is true. We have all had to get used to different situations and circumstances, for sure. I want to go back. I mentioned in the intro, you did the graphic design for Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, certainly wide acclaim there. Is there a cover or piece of artwork that you are most proud of and why? It's a tough question.
2: I turn this question around and certainly Jurassic Park is going to be the one that I'm best known for no matter what happens. So I've certainly made peace with that. Now, having said, I'm not a good draftsman or illustrator. It is worth pointing out that what I did design the original first edition of Jurassic Park, but I did draw that dinosaur skeleton silhouette and but i did it as work for hire as a staff person so when universal called (laughs) to to buy it i had to refer them to the legal department and so they bought it for twenty thousand dollars oof yep oof yeah that's a big ouch but it's amazing how it's I don't know what the word is, persevered all this time. It, I really thought with a third movie, that would be the end of it. And then with the new trilogy, it all just resurrected again. And they've never changed it. It's they, iconic, right? Yeah, if, you, if you just word. see it, oh. it. I mean, they render it like in stone or-, right. or render it in like metal or whatever, but it's the same drawing. It's pretty, pretty amazing. But almost
0: (laughs) if everyone, anyone sees it, they would know Jurassic Park without even seeing the words Jurassic Park.
2: It's going to be interesting to see what they're going to do next because there's, there's no way they're going to let that franchise die. And so somebody will have some sort of idea about how to do another three of them and we'll see what happens.
0: And this was really early on in your career, right? 1990. Right. So you're what, 24, 25 years old? 26. 26. What an amazing feeling that must have been for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it
0: was, we were all just astonished.
1: Yeah. All right. Chip, I'm going to shift a little bit here from the graphic design element to the actual, to the books themselves. And when I was doing some research, I came across as a short TED Talk video that you had about why books are here to stay. And by the way, for what my opinion is worth, I'm in agreement with you that I prefer physical books over reading them on a device. And by the way, I recommend to the listener to check this video out. It's only three minutes, but it's very, very catching. So there was a comment at the end that struck me. And I actually, to the point where I actually went back and forth and I transcribed this question for you. The quote was, books itself can't be turned off with a switch. It's a story that you can hold in your hand and carry around with you. And that's part of what makes them so valuable. A shelf of books, frankly, is made to outlast you no matter who you are. So all that said, can you share a few of the books that you value the most?
2: Well, at the risk of getting sentimental, so I was married to a writer for 22 years whose pen name was J.D. McClatchy. He went by Sandy McClatchy in real life, and we published him at Knopf. That's how we met, and we had an amazing life together. And he was very prolific. And really what I was referring to in that video is that I have two shelves of his books on, and that's what I have of him. Yeah. He died five years ago. It's a, it is a great and valuable thing, but yeah, I understand that if you're, if you want to be a graphic design major, this has been for some time now, it's almost impossible to not be some kind of digital designer, but, and I get that I'm going down an ink on paper guy, and I don't want what I do to be able to be turned off. Okay. Burn it if you want, but no, I very, in that sense, I'm very literally materialistic. And there, but there's many books that I value the most. Half the books that I've done or produced are out of print, but I can pick them up and look at them and remember a moment in time when I was working on that and here it all is here's a record of it and we printed forty thousand 000 of them so you can't destroy that record no matter how hard you try
0: i agree there's there is something about turning the pages that's very rewarding and feel feel accomplished i can't get behind the kindle or the digital movement myself so that's the three of us here yeah yeah
2: for sure and i can verify that ebooks are still less than 10 percent of our revenue Wow, What really took off during the pandemic was audio Sure, because then people could go about their tasks, cleaning the house or whatever, taking care of their kids and listen to a book at the same time.
0: I have a hard time with audio as well. I'm just more of a, it's funny, we're on a podcast of course, but I'm more of a visual learner at the end of the day. The interesting thing
2: with audio and print, prose is that it's still a theater of the mind audio a little bit less so because somebody's articulating it for you but you still have to picture it and i i love that i love like fixing in my mind okay what does the character really look like and then i like hook onto it and sometimes it's something but now oh my god it looks like laura dern so (laughs) now that's in my head yeah
1: and then to touch upon another element of your career, you've broadened into writing your own books and comic books and music. So how, how, tell us how that all came about and was that something that you've always wanted to do?
2: Always wanted to do? Yes, definitely. I should add here, when you mentioned the music thing, I haven't done any of that in a while, but there, there was a period about 10 years ago when I reconnected with my roommate from Pollock Halls. Wow. who In New York... And I was a drummer from fourth grade, all the way up through college. I was in the blue band. I was in the blue band all four years, absolutely loved it. But then when you get to New York, you have to decide. And obviously the graphic design was the direction I was going in, but, but yeah, like the music really music that I wrote and recorded with this guy named Marco Petrilli, out of him being at the end of the hall in the dorm. And we used to do these dopey little jams with like me on bongos and him on guitar. And he's really talented. He, he heads a music program these days down in Fort, at a high school in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. You should bring it back. Are you Are going to bring the band back together? Uh, we laid down some tracks in the summer of 2019. Okay. And I was really psyched about them. And then the pandemic hit. And as pretentious as this sounds, I really, he has this amazing studio in this high school down there. Like it's a professional Mm. quality and local groups record there. And there's just something about that as opposed to, I can't, I don't have a drum set here. So we'll see. Maybe this will trigger me into reconnecting (laughs) with them. The music was always a hobby. We never really made any music, any money off of it. But we did play this venue called Joe's Pub in in, in NoHo, which is a great thing. Yeah. I remember and that was just fantastic. And we sold it out and had a great time.
0: You mentioned a little while ago, Penn State, we have a great partnership with the Daily Collegian where students submit questions to our guests. And this week, Jake Lowell, a senior wants to know, what's your advice to art students who aspire to make it a career? Okay.
2: So year by year, this gets easier to answer. I'm not trying to make a joke here. It's really true because of what happens every year and what we're reading in the news, you need to be able to do something that AI can't. And that is you need to conceptually make art that a computer can not and that people want. Now, I, again, like I've always made a division between art and graphic design because there's all this... AI now that that you basically tell it what you
0: want. Can you just clarify that so we understand that, like the difference in your mind between art and graphic design? I want to make sure we we all understand that. Between art and graphic design? Yeah. So so,
2: uh, now we're getting into splitting hairs, but it's important, I think, within the school. You've got the fine art majors who are the painters and the sculptors. You've got the illustration majors who are straddling between graphic design and fine art and then you've got the graphic designers. The graphic designers and the illustrators are problem solved. So, are problem solvers. They have a client. They have somebody who needs this is what this article is about or this is what this movie is about and I need you to illustrate something so that it will encapsulate some kind of interesting part of this to entice a consumer. The fine artists are just doing whatever they want and okay, but that that is such a whole other world that we could talk for hours and hours on it and I frankly don't want to.
0: <laughs> How do you break into the industry, right? Like, What is your advice there? Because there's probably so many graphic designers who are so talented who have done great work and they're maybe not employed or maybe they haven't been recognized. Is there a way to navigate that career path? Now, when I
2: graduated from Penn State and went to New York, the computer existed, but not really. And certainly the web didn't exist. So I I had to walk my work around and get get interviews and get my foot in the door here. and, And it's hard. It's hard. And frankly, I think it gets harder with each generation because there are more and more kids that want to do it because if you can score that it's it's fun it's i'm making art for a living this is amazing i would say look where the jobs are and see what the job openings are certainly random house we have a whole section of our website open to the public showing what jobs need filled I I have no magic answer for that. (laughs) Um, It's hard, right? It's a little. It it would not help for me to say, you know what? I would not want to be 22 right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't mean to say that in a way that's talking down, but it's true. It's just so tough. The good news is you can create stuff that looks like finished printed work so much easier now than when I was in school. And so when I say the good thing about that is that people on your website or that look at your online portfolio, they can see what you're capable of, which wasn't always the case. Like they took a real leap of faith with me. I I was going to
1: say, so so talk a little bit more about the tools that you use. You mentioned trying to get around the AI. Talk a little bit about the tools that, that you use that help make your job like that much more, I guess your, maybe your output a little bit more advanced than it might've been earlier in your career, how the technology has helped. Uh, Adobe Photoshop
2: and Adobe InDesign. And that's it. That's, I don't do Adobe Illustrator. I convert things into a PDF in order to send it to the printer, but I don't create anything in PDF and I, some, I rarely actually quote, create in Photoshop. Photoshop is usually for image manipulation every now and then I'll do something typographically with Photoshop,
0: but yeah, that's it. All right, let's transition to your time at Penn State. We're going to put you in the Lions Den brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride. Remember to visit lions-pride.com and join the Lions Pride loyalty program to start earning rewards so you could use that on apparel and merchandise.
1: Chip, fact check this for us. We understand that your first book that you wrote called The Cheese Monkeys, was that actually inspired by your real life experience at Penn State?
2: Oh, yes. Oh yes.
1: So, can you give us a quick synopsis I for those you. that aren't familiar with it? It's about this kid
2: who want, wants to major in art at his state university, and he's this middle-class suburban white kid, and he go. I go he goes to. He gets into state U. I don't specify which school, but certainly. By the time you get to Sticky Buns at the Diner, you know. Um, <laughs> and so he thinks he wants to major in art, and then he finds this class called Introduction to Graphic Design, and it goes on from there. It's actually rather quite hair-raising. But to avoid litigation, I said it all in 1956, because I felt, frankly, Penn State in 1986 probably wasn't all that different from 1956, for better or worse, and... I wanted it to be before the dawn of pop art. So that didn't become part of the conversation because I think that would have just, I think that just would have muddied it up for my, for my purposes. But yeah, it's, it, you
1: have fun reading it. Yeah. to So for us, Jared, you and I, and the listener, we would check it out.
0: We will. Has anyone commented from Penn State about, from the art department well, about the book? Oh, sure.
2: Oh, yeah. And my God, it's, what, 23 years old, came out, no, 22 years old, came out in 2001, fall of 2001. And my teach, the teacher who it was based on, and my best friend, this girl, who the other protagonist it's based on, I had them read it. Just, and I didn't have to, because I changed enough, but I didn't want it coming out and then freaking out about it. So sure. they were understanding. The teacher, by the way, was a guy named Lanny Samis who who died last year at age eighty. And yeah, no, I think he got a kick out of it, even though he's a monster in the book.
1: And so then further to that, how has Penn State prepared you for, let's say, the earlier part of your career, right? And then your the professional life that you've been that you've been so successful in since then.
2: It prepared me really well because the teacher I just mentioned, Lanny Samis, and then he, the teacher who was directly under him, was this frankly, older guy named Bill Kinzer. And the two of them were geniuses. They were savage. You could not teach the way they taught today. I thrived on it. You wouldn't dream of not showing up for class. You wouldn't dream of showing up for class and not having your assignment completed. And if you did, they would tell you, get the out of here. And... I'm like, yes, sir. Were they critical or strict? Because both.
0: both. Okay.
2: And part of the point of the book is that when the teacher says something outrageous or something you could never say to a student today, he always has a reason. He always has a reason. He's not just trying to be mean. He's trying to be, he's trying to do his job. And that it's a tough world out there. And if you're not prepared, it's going to roll right over you. Their emphasis was on conceptual thinking and conceptual problem solving. Okay. So that was, that prepared me really well. Design a poster that either gets me to start doing something or stop doing something when I see it. Wow, That's an incredible skill if you can do that. And you can learn how to think that way. And then the, uh, the other thing where I got really lucky at that time. So I came to New York in the fall of 1986. I really wanted to work for a graphic design firm and my portfolio is well received, there just wasn't an entry level position at the places that I was going. And then somebody referred me to Random House. And I think what helped me get hired is that at the time in New York, you've got school of visual arts, you've got Pratt, you've got the Fashion Institute of Technology. I'm I'm leaving one out. Anyway, there were the New York schools and they were very good. But you could tell an SVA portfolio. You could tell a Pratt portfolio. You could tell an FIT portfolio. And here comes this hayseed from Pennsylvania (laughs) with a Penn State portfolio. And they're like, what the hell is this? But there was enough there that like this is really refreshing and this is
0: really different. Like when I got to Random House, that's what really got me hired. It's interesting how different schools and universities have, like they were you were typecasted. Interesting, and that was is that was that driven usually by the teacher as a, as influence? Well, bring it
2: three sixty. It was brought together by style. A wonderful designer Paula Acher was teach was teaching a senior portfolio class. Well, you could see. Her work in all of the portfolio right. because that was, and she does have a style and it's a brilliant style, but it's a style. And so then you could see it reflected in all the students. And I think it's all morphed from that now. But I, at the time, the Penn State graphic design program, which I might add admits 20 kids a year when you get to be a junior. Wow. So it's competitive. But the track record of people who have graduated and
0: done amazing things and gotten good jobs is extraordinary. Fantastic. And certainly you are one of them. want to touch on probably our toughest question of the podcast. Favorite Penn State memory. Oh, God. It's everyone's reaction. Yeah. No, it's, it's not printable here, as
2: they say. <laughs> this is a family show. There, there are so many. Oh, okay, this is easy. I was in the blue band when we won the world championship in January of 1987 in New Orleans. That's, I was what, 18, 17, 18? Amazing, amazing, so many more. Here's my most recent Penn State memory. Two weeks ago, there was a reception here in Palm Beach for the new president. Okay, There's a private home, this amazing apartment in Palm beach. And I was invited and I got to meet and talk with her and she's delightful. She's absolutely amazing. She's exactly what the school needs. I'm convinced. So
0: yeah, big fan as well in terms of a female president, the diversity. It's something we needed at Penn state. I think for for a long time,
2: female and diversity is fine but I listened to her talk for an hour. That's what really convinced me.
0: That's great. She's
2: brilliant. She's
1: Fantastic. Brilliant. Chip, you could visit with yourself as an 18 year old freshman entering Penn State. You could go back and meet yourself at that point in time. What advice would you share? I would say
2: go into porn now. <laughs> while you're still a twink and can earn some money. I don't know how to answer this. I would have tried On the one hand, I would have tried to convince myself not to be so worried all the time about if you're going to, quote, make it. Because I I did. I was a nervous wreck about that. But at the same time, if I were to actually say that to my 18-year-old self in a back-to-the-future kind of thing, that kind of would have ruined everything. Because then I probably wouldn't have worked as hard. Very true. A very sci-fi geeky way of... But no, I don't... I think this question has to do with Regrets. I don't really have any regrets regarding what I studied, where I went to school, what I was able to accomplish there, and then after school. Yeah.
0: That's great. You mentioned before FIT, Pratt. When you find out someone is considering Penn State specifically for maybe graphic design, what do you tell them? Like, why should they go there? I think we covered that because I think I think the teaching style
2: is still the same. There, there's a whole new regime of teachers there, but yeah. It's all about conceptual thinking. It's all about conceptual problem solving, and then executing that,
1: that idea. And Chip, you, our last question here, you mentioned you, I touched upon it a moment ago with the event that, where you met Dr. Bendapudi. Can tell us about other ways that you feel connected to the university?
2: It's very easy to answer because as you guys may or may not know, about 12 years ago, I arranged for my archive to be at the Special Collections Library at the awesome nice. Awesome. And That is ongoing, but I saved everything. And so there's tons and tons of my crap there. It's very much, I hope, a teaching archive and like throughout the years, like graphic design teachers have said, we want to go tour your archive. And I'm like, go for it. Great. And you can see the origin of the Jurassic Park logo there.
0: Wow. Very cool. I gotta say, this was a great 45 minutes with you. One of the things you can't put you in a box, right? You're just so diverse in terms of your thinking, in terms of the cover, not having a style. And I think one of the other things I thought about is I have a new appreciation now when I pick up a book to look at who the artist or the graphic designer is. And I know sometimes that's tucked in the inside cover. I'm going to make it and i think ross will as well make it our point to look into that and recognize that person so really appreciate you taking the time with us and we always end with we are and stay lion legacy is a baruta production if you enjoyed this labor of love podcast we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform